first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hey guys, Trace here, and welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we're going to rebroadcast episode number 60.5, all about mosquitoes. We'll cover how the history of mosquitoes has affected human history, why they like our blood, all the diseases they carry, and how we're working to fight them. I promise it's not going to suck, but let's get right into it. Mosquitoes and humans have had a super long relationship. Actually, mosquitoes predate humans. So I'm sure everyone here, everyone watching this show right now, has had their own encounters with a mosquito, either by slapping them or flicking them away from your skin or being a hero and jumping on that grenade for somebody else or slapping it away from them. But where did this mosquito thing come from? When was the first human bit by a mosquito? Obviously, we don't know specifically, but mosquitoes are super old. And insects likely evolved to drink blood at least six times throughout the history of our planet during the Jurassic and Cretaceous periods about 145 to 65 million years ago. And there are a couple of hypotheses on how this might have happened because we don't know because we weren't there everything exactly. And it's not like insects have really great fossils that we can go look at, right? So early insects started hanging out with vertebrates, uh, maybe potentially, according to one hypothesis, for warmth climbing into feathers or getting into fur and skin, and they started eating what was around them, organic debris like crumbs and fungus and scat. But then uh, a little bit of dead skin, you know, maybe got onto the plate and they were like, I'll just try it anyway. And they were like, this is actually real good. I I like this. I could eat more of this. And then they ate a little skin. They maybe ate a little feathers. Maybe they ate a little hair. And then they maybe ate a little blood. And they were like, this is the best thing ever. I'm just going to eat this. This is why I'm never going to try human flesh, because what if I like it, you know? Then I don't have any friends left. There were probably also, another hypothesis, uh, says that insects had the ability to suck a fluid out of an animal already, uh, potentially maybe to feed on plants, and then an insect landed on a mammal and tried it then and realized that they could digest blood. Probably it would have had to happen over many generations to get good at it, but You get the point. The idea being some insects could already suck and they bit a mammal or potentially they were around mammals so they curbed their evolution toward eating a viable food product nearby. They do think that maybe male insects could have started eating blood to uh, help mate with lady insects that were hanging out with vertebrates. So there are a variety of different theories. Again, we don't know exactly how. We just know that at some point throughout this planet's history, an insect evolved that could suck and digest human blood and mammal blood as well. Not, we're not the only ones who get bit by these things. So it could have happened any number of one of these ways. I mean, a hypothesis that I just kind of came up with while doing this research is perhaps uh, it was a starvation period, a famine period or an extinction period. And the only way to survive was by those animals that were surviving. So they had to live off of that animal. And it could have been any number of these things. I mean, I made that last one up. Just want to make sure. 
The oldest known modern mosquito is 79 million years old. It was found trapped in amber in Canada, very Jurassic Park. There's a more primitive mosquito that they know to exist as well that's been maybe 90 to 100 million years old. Uh, But either way, mosquitoes have been around for the entire time that humanity has. Uh, If you want to know how long humanity's been around, we have a whole series on that. So, of course, man and mosquito have had a very lengthy relationship. This means that mosquitoes have likely and have helped curb our evolution in the same way that our existence has likely curbed their evolution. We'll get into the specifics of diseases and how diseases have affected us and what diseases those carry in a little bit. But for now, let's talk about the threat of mosquito diseases and how it has affected human civilization, because it very much has. The biggest disease that has affected us is malaria. It's deadly, and it specifically is carried by the female Anopheles mosquito. Now, during the rise uh, and fall of the Roman Empire, there were mosquitoes around, and many people blamed malaria as a partial reason that the Roman Empire fell. It was discovered or theorized by an American archaeologist who made some discoveries while on a dig, and then a British scientist and DNA expert said, yeah, actually, that kind of makes sense, and an Italian expert on malarial mosquitoes said, yeah, this aligns with what we know of mosquitoes. So they took all of this different evidence, and they looked at about 450 AD. At the time, malaria was still killing people, as it is now, uh, and there were deadly mosquitoes coming into Italy from trade. They would hitch a ride with the goods of trade across the Mediterranean, and that killed children and adults. The mosquitoes would go and bite these children, bite these adults, and give them malaria. And so that, of course, in turn affected the Roman economy. There were fewer people to serve as soldiers. There were fewer people to farm the land and grow food for the rest of the empire. It affected the workforce. And of course, this wasn't the main reason for the fall of Rome. There were other reasons, but it could have played apart. The same experts that think malaria had a part in the fall of Rome also believe that it could have had a part in saving Rome because in 452, Attila the Hun was heading toward Rome and decided not to attack. If you look at the Hun timeline and you look at the timeline of this malaria that they think may have helped with the fall of Rome, some think that Attila was getting rumors that there were these fevers going around Rome. So, he decided not to attack. You know, you don't want to be around that. Rome, by the way, built near swamps. Mosquitoes love swamps. It has to do with their life cycle. They lay their eggs in stagnant water. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Before the fall of Rome, Alexander the Great had also died from fever-delivered malaria. And it's not just the Euroskeeters, okay? These things were all over the world. In the 18th century in the United States, the Revolutionary War is going on between us and great bees. And the British decided on a southern strategy. They sent 9,000 men to South Carolina, and they rallied the citizens there, or were attempting to, to get them excited about King George III. Isn't he a great guy? Totally. But instead of hoot and holler and crown support and Southerners, they found mosquitoes. And those mosquitoes, you guessed it, were carrying malaria. They attacked the soldiers there who had no exposure to that disease, and they were highly susceptible, so they died. And to make matters worse, doctors who wanted to treat them didn't, because this was the 1700s, have a great way of doing so. 
They would drain 10% of their blood or give them doses of mercury, which did not help doctors from the 18th century. Come on, you guys. One thing that did work was the bark of a tree found in the Andes Mountains, but it was super expensive to get to North America from there. And also the Spanish ran South America, and they weren't a big fan of the British. So they were like, see ya. No thanks. Not going to give you that. According to one Georgetown history professor, between June and November of 1780, more than half of the British army was, quote, too sick to move. The British army suffered greatly from this biological warfare that was happening to them by Mother Nature, and after fleeing the South, troops were relocated to Tidewater, Virginia, which was infested with malaria-carrying mosquitoes. After 21 days, the British army surrendered a quarter of their troops. This was not great for the British trying to take the U.S., back from its independent and, you know, whatever, tea-partying peoples. Spoiler alert, the British ended up losing this war. I don't know if you guys are aware, but it wasn't good for them. And this isn't the only set of human circumstances that mosquitoes played a part in. A lot of World War II was fought in tropical jungles throughout the Pacific theater, and there were a lot of mosquitoes carrying malaria there. So the United States had to put a lot of effort and money to making sure their troops did not contract malaria because they would suffer and die on these tiny tropical islands. The government created the Malaria Control in War Areas program, and after the war, that became America's Centers for Disease Control. And that helped keep troops healthy at the time, which gave them an advantage over the Japanese, uh, who did not have the same resources. The CDC is headquartered in Atlanta because the America's South was home to a lot of malaria activity. It all comes back, you know. Today, mosquitoes still have a big effect on humans. There's a lot of the world that is still being afflicted by malaria. It's a terrible disease, but it's not the only one. There's also dengue fever, yellow fever, and other mosquito-borne illnesses. They kill an estimated one million people every year. One could argue mosquitoes are our greatest threat or one of them, you know, but to defeat our enemy, we must know our enemy. So we have a long and enduring relationship with mosquitoes. Obviously, you get that. But some of us seem to have a closer relationship than others. I get bit by mosquitoes all the time. Producer Brian, he doesn't get bit by mosquitoes like ever. How come that is? To answer that, we have to know what attracts mosquitoes to us. I mean, Humans seem like we're just kind of hanging, right? We're just doing our thing. But every moment, we're giving off hundreds and some of us thousands of different natural scents. And some insects, they just love them. According to a chemist, his name is Ulrich R. Bernier, uh, and he works with the Agriculture Research Society Center for Medical Agricultural and Veterinary Entomology Mosquito and Fly Research. It's a unit. Quote, we have found more than 340 different chemical scents produced by human skin, and some of these attract mosquitoes. So that's one thing. Put that aside for a minute. We smell funny. Mosquitoes like it. They come at. But it could also be genetics. A PLOS One study used identical and non-identical twins and then figured out which was more attractive to mosquitoes. They exposed both the twins and non-identical twins and then gave them scores based on the bites that they were given. Identical twins who share this vast majority of their genetics had very consistent bite scores, you know, however they looked at it, size or frequency or whatever. Non-identical twins had different genes and their scores were also more different, indicating to those researchers that the genetics play some part. Perhaps they play some part in those smells and thus, you know, they bite us more often, but whatever it is, scientists don't quite know why. 
There are some other reasons, like potentially type O blood is more attractive to mosquitoes, people with high cholesterol or with steroids in their system who have excess amounts of uric acid, the lactic acid from your sweat, people who are drinking beer or have bacteria, certain types living on our skin, or maybe they were eating Limburger cheese. These are all real, but they're also all kind of mysteries. And it's good for people, you know, who volunteered to get bit by mosquitoes. Thank you so much to you guys. You guys are the best for trying to figure this out uh, in the name of science. But one thing that we do know they're attracted to, though, carbon dioxide, stuff we're breathing out all the time, respiration. Female mosquitoes have a receptor neuron called CPA, and it detects CO2 in very minute quantities. Assuming, of course, that, you know, carbon dioxide equals mammals, mammals equal blood, and blood thus equals tasty, tasty mosquito food. The home remedies for this all kind of make sense if you think of it as you're breathing out this carbon dioxide, right? Smoke contains carbon dioxide, but also a bunch of other stuff, and it masks the stuff that you're breathing out. Smelly bug sprays and citronellas, which is actually, by the way, just fun fact, an Asian grass, which contains oil. The oil is really pungent, and that hides the CO2 scent. So essentially, they're covering up everything. But mosquitoes are still really good at sensing CO2. They've evolved because this is what they need in order to eat. And without eating, they can't mate. Without mating, they can't make more mosquitoes. So they've evolved with the singular purpose. They can sense CO2 at between 10 and 50 meters. I'm going to do a sports metaphor here. I'm doing it. And if a mosquito is 50 meters from you, it means like you're on the 50-yard line and the mosquito is buzzing around in the end zone. I think that's correct. Sports, not my thing. But either way, it's buzzing around over there, and it's like, there's a human here somewhere. So it goes and follows that CO2 trail like a cartoon character, and it gets closer and closer, and within 5 and 15 meters or so, it can see you. They have compound eyes, hundreds of tiny little lenses all across the front of their head. In fact, the mosquito's head is mostly eye. They also have thermal sensors, so they can pick up your body heat once they get close enough, and they're like, mmm, tasty warm blood. And when they've zoned in on you and you don't manage to swat them away, they're going to land and bite. This is only the females, by the way, so it's going to be a lady mosquito getting all up on you. And after landing, it sticks its proboscis into you. Sounds dirty, right? A study from 2010 looked closely at what happens next. The study called her proboscis a natural biomicroelectromechanical system, which is pretty awesome. And what she does is she painlessly gets through your skin with Uh, nano-sharp teeth, and they act as saws. And once that's over, she can stick her fascial inside to get that sweet, sweet blood. There's actually a great play-by-play of this on the North Carolina State's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. We'll put a link down below. Because you have an immune system, once that proboscis gets all up inside of your body, mosquitoes have to fight off your immune system. The saliva that the mosquito is putting into your body as it's sucking the blood out of your body keeps your blood from clotting. It contains proteins that stop it. And then she just gorges until her abdomen is full, which is great for her, bad for us, because the saliva that she's putting into your bloodstream during this feeding frenzy is what causes the skin irritation that makes the mosquito bite that we see. Proteins from the mosquito saliva set off an immune response. The immune response says, oh my God, there's an invader somewhere. And like all good things, the mosquito isn't really the thing causing the mosquito bite reaction. That's us. That's our own immune system causing it. Immune system responses then cause a bump or a bite. It's technically called a wheel. And the body creates a chemical, which you are familiar with, called histamine. 
when you take an antihistamine, you're getting rid of, you're knocking back that histamine reaction. The chemical creates that bump and that wheel, and the swelling of the little bump disturbs the nerves in that region. They get annoyed, and annoyed nerves equals itching. Once the immune cells break down the saliva, the wheel's going to disappear, but in between, it's really awful, and there's so much itchiness. I feel violated by her proboscis. That lady mosquito forcibly spit in my blood. Weird. So scratching the itch is only going to make this worse because you're doing this to yourself. Your body is trying to break down this saliva and scratching inflames the wheel and irritates it even more and more swelling means more annoyed nerves. More annoyed nerves means more itching. The body's like, oh my God, it's gotten worse. We need more histamine here, stat, which causes more swelling and irritation and more scratching. I hate mosquitoes so much, you guys. I hate them. I hate them. So now that we get how they work, what are these things all about? Males, uh, they only live a few days. They're the kind of the boring part of the mosquito chain. Their main purpose is to mate. That's all they're for. Females, they live longer. They're the ones who bite us. And the females take iron and protein found in the blood that they just sucked out of me, and they use it to produce eggs. Males and females both will drink nectar, and they'll also drink water. The good news is not all mosquitoes eat the blood of humans. Some feed on mammals or birds or amphibians or reptiles. They fall into three main categories. The Aedes mosquitoes, which lay eggs in floodwater areas. The Anopheles mosquitoes, which lay eggs in permanent freshwater. And the Culex mosquitoes, which lay eggs in standing water. Those are my least favorite. Mosquitoes, though, I don't know if you caught this from them, they need water. The CDC approximates there are 3,500 different species of mosquito, and they're grouped into 41 genres. The Anopheles mosquitoes are the only ones that carry malaria, and of the 430 different kinds of Anopheles, only 30 to 40 can actually carry the malaria virus. They're also the guys that carry elephantiasis and encephalitis. The Culex, they're responsible for West Nile, and Aedes carry yellow fever and dengue. For some of us, mosquitoes are just annoying. You know, they bite us, we itch, you know, you get a little uncomfortable for a few days, maybe put some calamine lotion on there, that's what my mom used to do. Uh, the itch goes away, you forget about it. But there is a deathly part of this cycle that we often don't think about, you know? The fact that the mosquito is breaking the skin, that's our major barrier to disease, is our skin. It's the biggest organ in our body, and it's there to keep pathogens out of us. And mosquitoes just go right around it, stick right into our bloodstream. Most people are aware that mosquitoes can carry diseases, and they're pretty good at transmitting some of those diseases into our bodies. Viruses like malaria, dengue fever, West Nile, Zika, and we're going to look at each of these in turn and explain what they are and, and why mosquitoes carry them. So first off, there's malaria. It's a huge killer worldwide. It's existed for over 4,000 years, and it may not seem like it, but there are actually two types of malaria. There's uncomplicated malaria, which has three different stages. It's a, a cold, and then a hot, and a sweating. You can experience weakness and an enlarged spleen and mild jaundice and enlargement of the liver. That's, that's the uncomplicated version. Then there's severe malaria. This is when infections are then complicated by organ failure, abnormalities in your blood or your metabolism. So it's like the malaria just makes it worse. 
And then you would get abnormal behavior and your consciousness would be impaired. You could potentially have seizures or go into a coma and it can be life-threatening. But this all depends on the host's genes. So uncomplicated malaria, which has those three stages, you can have that and be okay. But if you have the wrong genetic markers, you could potentially get severe malaria and it can cause all sorts of other problems. Malaria is not the mosquito itself. It's carried by the mosquito. It's a parasite, a plasmodium. It's transferred specifically by the Anopheles mosquito and specifically in the Anopheles group, it's carried only by the females. The female Anopheles mosquito makes a blood meal and it does that to carry out the production of the mosquito eggs. It's part of their reproductive cycle. So the blood meal is the link between the human and the mosquito hosts because once that mosquito pokes into your skin, the malaria parasite can get right into your bloodstream and spread throughout your body. Because the bloodstream goes everywhere and eventually hits the liver, the malaria just sits in your blood, waits to get to the liver where it then attacks. It feasts, it multiplies, targets red blood cells, and vital organs across the whole body begin to suffer because of that. There used to be a vaccine for malaria. You've probably heard of it. The remedy uh, was known as quinine, and it comes from the bark of a chinchona tree. Then in the 1940s, a synthetic drug was created using something called chloroquine or chlorokine. I'm not sure. An insecticide, DDT, was then developed. You've probably heard of DDT. It's a fairly famous insecticide, and that eradicated the malaria disease because it killed the mosquitoes. But... In the 1970s, DDT was knocked back because it was thought that it was harmful to certain wildlife. And because of that, mosquitoes became resistant to it, and that was the end of that. So now malaria is still rampaging around the world and something that people are still working on trying to cure. Dengue fever was recorded as early as 265 or about 420 BCE or AD. Like malaria, there are also two types of dengue fever. There's the less severe kind and the more severe kind. And the less severe kind, you're going to experience flu-like symptoms. You're going to get a high fever and a headache. You're going to have joint aches and pains. It feels very much like the flu, like a really bad flu. But if you get a severe dengue fever there will be leakage of blood plasma out of your capillaries. You'll have a reduced white blood cell count, which makes it so you can experience other diseases. You can also bruise more easily because you can't repair yourself. Uh, And it's transmitted by a specific mosquito called the Aedes mosquito, A-E-D-E-S, not, you know, the decade. In most countries, there isn't an approved vaccine for the Aedes mosquito-transmitted dengue fever, But in 2015, a French pharmaceutical company, Sanofi, developed a vaccine they called Dengvaxia, and it was approved in Brazil, the Philippines, and Mexico. And it's essentially a live virus comprised of an attenuated yellow fever virus, which is genetically engineered to coax the immune system to create the right antibodies. So if you do become exposed to dengue, you're already prepared. Sounds dangerous, which is maybe why it hasn't been approved everywhere. I don't actually know that much about it. If you're not in those three countries, uh, and I am not, there is no specific medication that you can take to treat dengue. Most people who have good medical care could recover from both types of dengue fever. You know, you need hydration, you need fluid replacement, pain relievers, and of course, bed rest. All of those things are available in most uh, good hospitals and medical facilities. The problem comes when it strikes somewhere that doesn't have those medical facilities, and then 
you don't get rehydrated easily. You don't get bed rest. You aren't ready for this to hit. There's also West Nile, another virus that is here in the U.S. And now uh, dengue and malaria, you, you have that in the U.S., but the chances of being infected here are not nearly as high as other places around the world. You're more likely to be infected if you travel, but that doesn't mean we're safe, right? Because West Nile was first detected in North America in 1999, and most people have no symptoms when they're bit by a mosquito that is carrying West Nile. But one in five experience fevers with symptoms like headaches and body aches and joint pains and vomiting and diarrhea and a rash. So it's like a flu, but, you know, way worse. The virus can cross the blood-brain barrier, which is also terrible, and it can even affect the spinal cord and the brain. This has happened to less than 1% of the people who have been infected with West Nile, but it can lead to, because it's the brain, serious neurological problems like encephalitis or meningitis. And people who have their brain and spinal column affected by West Nile can experience coma, tremors, seizures, paralysis, or just simple disorientation. And some of that may be permanent, and other bits might be deadly. About 10% who develop neurological symptoms after experiencing West Nile will die. And there's no cure. Symptoms can be treated. There's no cure for this. And now the new kid on the block, or you know, and the new kid on the media block really, is Zika. And you've likely heard about Zika because the World Health Organization recently declared Zika a public health emergency of international concern, a P-H-E-I-C. And this led to some controversial discussions in Brazil, especially for women, uh, specifically mothers and their children, and abortion rights. Because Zika is suspected to be linked to an incurable neurological birth defect called microcephaly. And it's a, essentially an atrophying of parts of the body. The birth defect creates a small head that can lead to brain damage. Uh, also, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an immune system that attacks the nervous system of the person. This is terrible. And Zika, I said new kid on the block via the media because it's actually existed since 1947, but there were just a few documented cases in Southeast Asia and Africa. And it was thought that the virus was brought to Brazil because of the World Cup in 2014. Someone traveled from somewhere where Zika was more common and they brought it with them to Brazil. Outside of possible birth defects, Zika is rarely fatal. You get, you know, a little milder symptoms than with dengue fever. Uh, most don't experience symptoms at all, which is dangerous because if you don't know that you have it and then you try and produce a child, you could have a child with one of those disorders. And unlike many other viruses that we've talked about today so far, Zika can be transmitted sexually, say some studies, and that makes it hard to know who's at risk because it could be given to a man and then passed to a woman and thus the birth defects could occur. The question that we have after these kind of heavy bits of this episode is, why is it that these diseases are the ones that mosquitoes tend to carry? These tend to be, you know, pretty terrible, life-threatening diseases. Why not something else? I mean, another life-threatening disease that is blood-borne and also sexually transmitted is HIV. So why don't mosquitoes carry HIV? They don't because of the way the mosquito works. Their snout looks like a needle, but it's actually... Uh, comprised of six different mouth parts, if you get really, really close to it, maybe with an electron microscope. And those mouth parts are used to pierce the skin. Then inside of those mouth parts, there are various tubes, and one sends saliva into the host, and the other sends blood up to the mosquito. 
Blood from the mosquito never actually goes into the host, just the saliva. So if a mosquito does suck up some of the blood from you and get the HIV virus, the mosquito would have it, but it wouldn't pass it through its saliva back into you. The thing is, mosquitoes, separately from that, aren't really susceptible to HIV because they don't have T cells the way we do. And HIV attacks the T cells, and they need those T cells in order to replicate. So without them, the virus just kind of gets broken down inside the mosquito's body. When it comes to these diseases, though, you know, West Nile, dengue, Zika, malaria, these are huge problems, especially in the developing world. And there are organizations all over the planet dedicated to either one or all of these infections, of these diseases, and in fighting these things. Prevention techniques for these infections are largely about staying away from mosquitoes. You know, what else can you really do? You can wear long pants, you can wear long sleeve clothing, you can get mosquito nets and repellents and stay in places with air conditioning and keep stagnant water at bay. But there might be other things we can do too. In the battle against mosquitoes, we already know that they're old, they're dangerous, and they've been around since as long as we have, at least. But bug spray, that has not always been around. That is actually fairly new. So for years and years, people protected themselves with ointments and remedies and things that they could put onto their body or near themselves to protect themselves from the bite. A lot of these were made from roots and from plants and animal oils. We mentioned citronella earlier. Uh, Today's almanac has some other natural remedies, like burning sage or rosemary lemon eucalyptus oil, swallowing garlic or garlic tablets, baby oil, vanilla extract, apple cider vinegar. There are even remedies to help with the pain or itching like lemon juice and mashed garlic paste and white vinegar and all of these different things. But I think a better place to look is probably what other animals do. Researchers observed the wedge-capped capuchin monkey in the tropical forests of Venezuela rubbing a millipede on itself And they figured out that it was a defensive chemical that was inside of that millipede that it was protecting itself against mosquitoes with. The chemical is called a benzoquinone. And God, I wish I had some of that sometimes, but I don't really mess with millipedes. They're gross. So we want to use these chemicals to deal with mosquitoes, but we don't have any benzoquinones. Kind of sucks to be us. And that's bad because we discovered the connection between malaria and mosquitoes in 1900. They very shortly after that became the number one pest in the United States. So a guy named Leland Howard, who is an entomologist who worked with the U.S. government, wrote a paper. The title is Mosquitoes, How They Live, How They Carry Disease, How They Are Classified, How They May Be Destroyed. Howard, Leland, you're the best. His thought was to cover the United States with kerosene, well, kerosene spray, and we killed them all, the whole U.S. It's probably a bad idea, Leland. Went up, came right back down. We don't have a great track record when it comes to spreading chemicals across the planet. Bad things tend to happen. The Federal Insecticide Act of 1910 regulated insecticides so that people like Leland Howard's plans didn't get to be done. It tried to make insecticides safer, but even that wasn't the best. Eventually, a replacement for kerosene was found. Uh, In the 1940s, we developed something called DDT. It was a very famous insecticide. We touched on it just recently. DDT is dichloral diphenyl trichloroethane, and it was developed to combat malaria for both military and civilians. One of the, it was one of the first chemicals to be used as a pesticide, and it had a lot of success fighting off mosquitoes and other pests here 
in the homeland until they realized that DDT wasn't the best for the environment. It could cause risks to human reproduction, including male infertility and miscarriages. It was linked to breast cancer, although that link is debated, liver tumors and messing with your nervous system. And once in the environment, the chemical actually settles in and then breaks down into something called DDE. And DDE supposedly affects the thinning of eggshells, leading to declines in American bird species. Although, again, some of these things are also debated. And it's not as big a deal to look into it because, whether it's true or not, it was banned. In 1996, the United Nations Environment Program banned DDT. Uh, They wanted to ban persistent organic pollutants. But even though it's harmful, the ban on it was also in a debate because malaria is still killing lots of people around the world, and this is an effective way to kill mosquitoes. In 2006, the World Health Organization said it's okay to use DDT indoors in African countries, saying the danger of DDT isn't as bad as the dangers of malaria. Another popular chemical that you may have heard of to fight mosquitoes is DEET. If you go and buy, like, Deep Woods bug spray products, they probably all say how much DEET they have in them. DEET is NN-diethylamtuliamide, and it's developed and tested in the 40s and 50s, again, World War II-related, and it's amazing at repelling mosquitoes. In fact, where I grew up in the woods in mid-Michigan, it was the only thing that you could use to fight off mosquitoes. It's in bug spray and lotions and creams, but the best part about DEET, we're not really sure why it works, Uh, They think that it masks the smell of humans, which I touched on uh, back at the beginning of this. Uh, But those little bugs, if they can't smell you, they can't find you. So they think that that's what DEET is doing. One 2009 study found that DEET, though, can mess with enzyme activity. The study found DEET blocked something called cholinesterase, which is essential for transmitting messages from your brain to your muscles. So DEET could potentially be dangerous as well. Many feel that it's perfectly safe. In 1998, the EPA reviewed it and said if it was correctly used, it's fine. And researchers see no evidence of DEET causing any cancer, birth defects, or in any way damaging you in those ways. Uh, It's also doctor-recommended and scientist-recommended. NPR asked a bunch of researchers who spend time around mosquitoes. They mostly said DEET was the way to get the mosquitoes to leave you alone. But DEET is just a solution to keep the mosquitoes that exist away from your skin. You don't want them sticking their proboscis up in you at all. But there are bigger plans to take out swarms of mosquitoes at a time, species of mosquitoes. One way is chemicals like DDT, but there's also biological control. Some species of fish are bred and then placed in water ponds or wells, and not just any old fish. They have to be larvivorous fish a fish that will feed on the larvae and pupae of other species, decimating the mosquito population because that's where they lay their eggs. Some other places have tested this using something called a copepod. It's a tiny little crustacean that also feeds on larvae. Others think that releasing dragonflies is the way to go because dragonflies eat them mosquito babies. Swansea University did a study about using a fungus to kill mosquitoes which attaches itself to the mosquito host, penetrates the body, and then triggers all sorts of terrible things eventually killing it. This is like biological warfare, one enemy and against another. There have been a lot of other studies about using fungi to kill off mosquitoes as well because fungal disease has been known to naturally decimate insect populations. So we're just kind of promoting one thing against another. We just need to figure out which fungi are the best and safest and how to put it in places that would make it an effective battle for the two things. 
So we're using nature to fight nature, which sounds awesome. But what about like hard science? You know, what about modern science? What can it do to fight mosquitoes? Brazil recently came out with a plan to zap millions of male mosquitoes with gamma rays so they become sterile. Worst superpower ever. And of course, the mosquito laser, which is an actual thing, in 2010, a company invented this thing that uses infrared cameras and lasers that can identify, track, and kill dozens of mosquitoes every second. This is crazy. It's like Tony Stark stuff up in here. But what if we went bigger? What if instead of just targeting dozens of mosquitoes in the area of a laser or a gamma ray emitter, we just killed all mosquitoes forever? I just have to say this joke that I made up. It's the best. What if I'm like, mosquitoes must quit those? What do you think? No? Terrible? So we know what damage the mosquitoes can do, and we've tried different methods to stop them or make them sterile using sprays and lasers and all sorts of stuff, but mosquitoes are still here, and they've been here longer than humans have, and some are just proposing we just kill them all. We just destroy the entire mosquito population of the planet and literally wipe them off the face of the earth, which brings up two questions. One, how the heck are we going to do that? There are a lot of them. And two, what would happen if we did it? You know, what is the ramifications of this action? There are billions of mosquitoes on this planet. This would be speciside, specide. Basically, we're killing a whole species, many actually. And it's been tried before in the 1950s and 60s in Latin America. The Pan American Health Organization underwent an effort to eradicate the Aedes aegypti using large amounts of DDT. They cleaned up standing water containers because that's where mosquitoes would lay their eggs, and they sprayed DDT everywhere, and it worked, but they eventually returned after the efforts were halted, possibly hitching rides on ships coming from Africa or Asia. Current plans being talked about would take about 30 types of mosquitoes off the face of the planet. Not every mosquito, because there are 3,500 different types. But one way of doing that would be by genetic modification. Scientists at Oxford University teamed up with a biotechnology firm and genetically modified a male Aedes aegypti, the mosquito that carries Zika and dengue fever. They now carry a gene that stops their offspring from fully developing, meaning the second generation of offspring just won't be able to reproduce and spread the disease. It's kind of like a ticking time bomb inside of their genetic code. They modified 3,000 mosquitoes and they released them in the Cayman Islands. Yep, they released a genetically modified mosquito into the wild. This was in 2009 and 2010, and they found a 96% reduction in the mosquito population at that time. Another trial in Brazil saw a 92% decline in mosquito populations. Another plan would genetically modify male mosquitoes to kill the females when they mate. This sounds like, like the movie The Purge. Terrible. Another study published in Nature doesn't want to kill them all but wants to stop them from doing the thing that we hate other than the biting and the itching, carrying malaria. They want to alter the mosquito's DNA so that they're not susceptible to carrying the malaria virus around, basically malaria-resistant mosquitoes. They are still around and they're still annoying, but they're not killing people, so that's, that's definitely a big bonus. Another plan is to alter them so that all the mosquito babies that are made are male, that would eventually cause a big problem for their population. They don't drink our blood, but they don't spread disease, and they also wouldn't mate with each other successfully. I don't know if they would otherwise. There are others who just want to step up the chemical game, the chemical warfare game that has worked in the past and they know how to handle mosquito populations with. 
Some are referring to this chemical game as the nuclear option. As we already talked about, though, many of these pesticides that they are talking about using to decimate mosquito populations have side effects out in the natural world. They could be destructive to people, destructive to nature. And mosquitoes have been known to grow resistant to insecticides. The toxins that kill mosquitoes kill them, sure. But they also get into the water and food supplies that humans need, and of course into the air we breathe, which is not the best. could also lead to non-mosquito insects dying as well, and that's because chemical sprays don't have targeted results. Not all insects are deadly pests. We do need some insects. You know, what if it kills bees? Who's going to pollinate the flowers? You? Me? No, thank you. Rather make podcasts. But if it means taking out malaria and Zika and yellow fever, is that worth it? It's not really up to us, is it? I don't know. So let's say we did it. We killed all the bad mosquitoes. What happens next? There would, of course, be a lot of negative repercussions. Mosquitoes feed mostly on plant nectar, and they are important to the pollination process. You probably didn't know that. But since mosquitoes eat nectar and they spend a little time on this flower and then that flower, they're spreading pollen around and helping flowers breed with each other. Again, you going to do that? I doubt it. Of course, you'd have this break in the food chain as well. Aside from pollinating plants, birds and bats eat mosquitoes. And things like fish and frogs eat the larvae of mosquitoes. One article in Nature references the huge swarms of mosquitoes in the Arctic tundra, and if those mosquitoes disappeared, experts think migratory birds would no longer go there, possibly by as much as 50%, which means 50% fewer migrations. And of course, other scientists think that that might be an overreach, the birds might be fine, the bats might be okay, the frogs will find something else to eat. You know, bats eat mostly moths, so they'd be fine, and birds might just find another insect as well. But the thing is, even though they're not a huge part of the biomass for a lot of these animals, animals don't just go, eh, no mosquitoes in the fridge. Guess I'll go to McDonald's. You know, if there's no food there, they don't think to go get another food. They have to adapt or die. So they will probably just die because they won't be eating as much. They won't have as much energy. And over time, they will adapt and not have mosquitoes around. But we could cause something that we cannot control in terms of their population changing. The bottom line is that, yes, ecosystems are going to change. Most places that mosquitoes exist, mosquitoes are actually invasive species. So many feel confident that the ecosystem would be fine. It's adjusted for them being there. It's going to adjust back to them not being there. But it's hard to say. In fact, it's impossible to say because there are so many moving parts. There are a lot of people that think having mosquitoes around is actually a good thing. They keep humans in check. One science writer thinks that the annoying and deadly mosquito has slowed down man's destruction of places like the rainforest. It's sort of keeping us out of there because we don't want to get bit when we don't get malaria. And though I seem like I'm pretty hard against killing all the mosquitoes and then for them and then against them again, I'm really just presenting all the facts because killing them might have a positive economic aspect to a lot of different nations. Some sub-Saharan African countries spend 1.3% of their GDP treating malaria. Just killing off mosquitoes would lighten that burden off of their health systems and their economies. I mean, there are nations that only spend 2% of their GDP on their entire military. And these countries have to spend 1.3% of it treating malaria. In places like Florida, some think it would bring in more tourist dollars because the threat of Zika virus would be minimized, uh, and that's messing with tourist industries in Central and South America as well as up here in North America, predominantly via cruise ships. Since the outbreaks, Norwegian cruise line stock has fallen by over 7% and Carnival by 6% just because Zika virus, which is a mosquito-borne disease. Also, mosquitoes affect agriculture or industries that are outdoors, you know, crop fields, orchards, marinas, those people have to 
deal with mosquitoes. But coming back to it, there's a philosophical argument against this, isn't there? Should we take all of these insects and remove them from the population just because it would be better for us? It wouldn't be better for the fish and for the frogs and for the bats and for all of these other animals, migratory birds that eat these mosquitoes, even if it's just a small part of their diet. It wouldn't be better for them, at least not for the foreseeable future. It would just be better for us humans. Are there other less drastic measures? Sure. Scientists agree, though, that we don't know 100% of what's going to happen. Is that a risk that we're willing to take? For now, we're trying our hardest just to manage mosquitoes. Killing the ones we can, tracking ones that we can't kill, cleaning up stagnant water, educating the world on mosquito safety, wearing long sleeves, you know, mosquito nets, using citronella if that works for you. But maybe one day we'll just set up a little thing over there and it'll shoot lasers at all the mosquitoes in the area. It'd be crazy, right? <laughs> but for now, just follow the mosquito control recommendations for your area and you should be okay. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you.